Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Back in 1964, a popular political novel of the time, the 480, laid the predicate that we could use computers then still in their infancy to break down the population into 480 unique tribal categories, that we could fine-tune the classification of people allowing politicians to target their message. Today, that quaint 1964 fantasy notion exists on steroids. It exists in part because it exploits the idea that we are desperate to belong to a group, to a tribe, to hang out and have common cause with people like us. Once upon a time, those tribes included large and diverse groups, religion and faith, occupation, community, places where people built up social capital. Today, that social capital has been replaced by financial capital. And in the words of Robert Putnam in his 2000 book, Bowling Alone, people divorced from community, occupation, and association are first and foremost among the supporters of extremism. So short of a singular charismatic leader, what is it today that can begin to be a unifying force to reverse fragmentation? We've seen that it's not a global crisis, and it's certainly not misplaced nostalgia for a simpler time. So what is it? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Bruce Ledowitz. He's a professor of law and the Adrian Van Cam Endowed Chair in Scholarly Excellence at Duquesne Law School, where he specializes in law and religion. He is the author of numerous articles as well as three books, and it is my pleasure to welcome Bruce Ledowitz here to talk about his latest work, The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you for having me. It's a delight to have you here. When we look at the alienation and the fragmentation that we we talk so much about today, is it important, first of all, and if so, can we pinpoint a particular time when this fragmentation really began to reach some kind of critical mass? Well, it's not difficult. It's it's obviously um, in the 90s, uh, because that's when every single Republican voted against Clinton's first budget before he had disgraced himself with his behavior. And that was the time at which uh, partisanship uh, broke the norm of American public life. And uh, we began to have party line voting in, uh, in most things. And there had to be arguably underlying causes that something certainly at that period of time may have triggered it. But the underpinnings of it seems like they been, had been with us for a while. That's absolutely right. In other words, that that simply could not have happened in an earlier period of national patriotism in which, as you said in your introduction, people were devoted to larger things. And one important larger thing was faith. Um, people don't realize uh, how much this country was founded on uh, the myth of God. Um, there's our, our arguments, of course, about whether this was a Christian nation and so forth. But there's no question the framers had in mind a theistic universe, a universe with a beneficent God and a, and a very, very uh, hopeful future. And that's what eventually is lost. And we, you don't even notice it because it was so much a part of everyday life that you never thought about it. Now suddenly it's gone. And, um, you know, there wasn't any particular moment. It just began to ebb. And as I say in the book, you know, as the tide goes out at some point, suddenly there's no water. To what extent, though, did the founders' desire to keep faith separate from the political process relate to what you're talking about? Well, no, absolutely. They, they, um, the founders did not want a, a Christian political system. 
that's clear, or a religious political system. I mean, we were the most separated of church and state of any of any nation at the time that we were founded. But they but they assumed faith as a background, as a as a as a fundamental commitment of the population as a whole. It wasn't even something you had to worry about. Um, we don't have that now. So we have a a secular political system, but now we have a secular culture. We never had that before. To what extent, coming back to the founders again, to what extent did they see faith separate and apart from the institutions of religion? That faith and religion as and religions as an institution were really two separate things. Actually, I don't think they had that sense. I think that's a very modern view of religion that it uh, can be uh, personal. I, 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 although certainly the Protestants of of, of the of the 1700s had an idea of personal religion, but they didn't have an idea of a, of personal, a personal church. Uh, they assumed that every Christian would belong to a church of some kind, and that's, of course, why Protestants had these splits, because uh, nobody wanted to be alone. The idea that you can be spiritual but not religious, or, you know, spiritual, religious, but not belong to any institutional uh, uh, expression of that is is a very recent idea, and it it lacks any sustaining power. It's not likely to be true. It lacks sustaining power, but given that there seems to be more willingness in in society today to look at spirituality and faith in the abstract versus an institution. It seems like if there's going to be any kind of a restoration or if it's going to be helpful in restoring the alienation and fragmentation of today, that we need to really look at that because sir, our, our distrust of institutions is even higher than our distrust of faith. That's absolutely right. And I, I, what I say in the book is this, this all begins with our collective social view of the universe, that uh, prior to recent times— we, the American society had a basic idea that the universe was trustworthy, and that's why Dr. King could say the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, and everybody understood what he meant. That is exactly what we don't have now. With the death of God that is finally, as I say in the book, come home to roost, now suddenly the universe, well, we don't know what to think about it. I mean, we still have the leftover of belief in God, so we still have something like the National Day of Prayer about COVID-19, even though it was really a desultory affair, and you could almost see how secular we've become by how empty it was. But we still have those, those leftovers. But on the other hand, for most people, the, um, the idea of the universe is just forces and matter, and we're, and we're largely materialistic. We just haven't decided which we are, and we, we don't have a new story. And as I say in the book, you can build a new society, you can build a secular society on different views of the universe, but you have to take the matter seriously. And we're just drifting at the moment. And this is something that we're talking about in the context of, of America, but this move to secularism is a, a global phenomenon, particularly in the West. Absolutely. And by the way, I don't think it's going to remain in the West. You know, we, we have no sense of time here in America. Uh, it took a long time for this to happen in America, but happened in Europe first. It's been just as uh, corrosive of the foundation of European society as it has been here. And there's no reason to think it won't spread. 
um, remember, Christianity looked unassailable until suddenly there was the Enlightenment. The same thing is going to be true in Islam. And the more the strong men of the world use religion for political purposes, the more quickly secularization is going to come over the whole, over the whole globe. Why is there an argument to be made that this move towards secularism is a modern-day enlightenment? Well, it is. I mean, it's, we're the heirs of the enlightenment. But remember, somehow the enlightenment retained the faith in progress. The enlightenment believed, in fact, that the, that the rationality of the universe was not a question of religion, was a question of science. And they, they were just very comfortable. They hadn't yet grappled with, uh, with Nietzsche's nihilism as we have done. And, you know, for us, the uh, death of God has simply finally arrived in, in reality. The Enlightenment didn't have to think about it. They, they had the momentum of Christendom. As we look at it today, this, this lack of faith in institutions and, and arguably the, the inability to in, put that faith back in the bottle, so to speak, to what extent does that make it impossible to achieve some of the things that you're talking about? Uh, well, you know, Jeff, there has never been a secular civilization. It's always been based on religion, and every religion that we know has supernaturalism at its heart. So the idea that you could build a secular civilization on naturalistic principles, we just assume it's possible. I, I hope it's possible, because otherwise we're sort of stuck. Um, because I don't think the movement of the death of God is reversible in any, in any time frame that will matter to us. So I think it, it's true that you can build a secular society on, on, on the shoulders of a dark, meaningless universe. I think it's difficult. I argue in the book that's not the best option, but it is possible. On the other hand, there are plenty of thinkers, secular thinkers, or at least thinkers without supernaturalism, who say, no, the universe is on our side, and we, we can trust the universe, we can trust the values that we get from the universe, even though we don't believe in God. And, you know, that's the yes, that's the answer to the question, is the universe on our side? A question that I got from Bernard Lonergan, a, theolo a Canadian theologian, who, you know, asked his question for a secular time. He didn't ask about God's existence. He said, ask this. Is the universe on our side? And build from there. Is our sense of self-absorption today so much in play that we can't even ask that question, that it doesn't even matter <laughs> to most people? That's right. Um, well, you know, there's the advantage of Donald Trump as your president. <laughs> uh, when I, I first began to talk about these things a long time ago, and, uh, and I ran into exactly what you're talking about. You know, sort of, okay, so what? <laughs> I think people have more of a sense now that there's something really wrong when a Donald Trump, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about policies. Uh, even Donald Trump's supporters found it strange that he could be elected president. And they often talked about the idea that we're breaking all the norms by electing someone like that. Well, when you talk that way and think that way, and, and not just in America, but Brexit in, in, in um, Brit Britain as well, then you are um, talking about a broken system. And that means people are more open to um, radical and unthought solutions than they were before. I guess the question is whether that represents the end of something or the beginning of something. That's right, exactly. And what I say is all of the divisions that we see that are, are so terrible 
in America today. Um, and particularly difficult to understand because, as you know, our problems are not that great. Our problems are not the way as bad as the Depression and the Civil War and World War II. And yet we feel completely defeated by life. Um, I think those are all the birth pangs of secular civilization. You know, something has ended, something new is coming, but, and we haven't yet gotten our, our, our minds around it yet. But we will. I think, you know, I, I hope that my book will become like uh, something like a, a first step on the road to secular renaissance. To what extent do you think that in some kind of a secular renaissance that leadership in general and charismatic leadership in particular becomes critically important? Well, it's true when you don't believe in God, as um, uh, Chesterton said. It, it's not that you don't believe anything, it's you believe everything. And so we, we find ourselves extremely gullible and falling for the first you know, fast-talking huckster on the road. So I think you, we have to try to avoid things like that in the interim. That's why Joe Biden was so popular. You know, at first he seemed like a, re, a return to normalcy. He wasn't charismatic, and that's exactly what Americans were looking for. I think that's a danger, Jeff, in the interim. Till we rebuild uh, faith in, in social institutions, we run the risk of, of chasing after people. What is it that, that you think in this framework can help restore faith in institutions, because that is a kind of first step or early step. Well, you know, I argue in the book that the, the first step is the level of what is called ontology or the belief in reality, trusting reality. May, we have to first make a decision, is the universe on our side or not? And, and if the answer is no, by the way, uh, then we have to say, okay, how do people build trustworthy institutions in a, in a neutral a universe, a dark and meaningless universe. That will be hard to do, but I think if you admit where you are in common, that's a good starting point for building institutions. Uh, I think the, the problem we have right now is we have no common story. There's no common appeal. Um, years ago, if we had been in a situation like this, people of faith, like you interviewed Jim Wallace, uh, for example, I think recently, and somebody like Jim Wallace would come along like Niebuhr did in the 50s and 60s, and, you know, say, look, people, let's get together. And it would mean something. But right now it's difficult to do that because we don't have a common starting point. Is the, the sort of operative word in that question in, is about the universe being on our side is the our? Because it, people may say the universe is on their side, but it's not on their side. <laughs> Because they're different <laughs> well, you, than us. Right. That's exactly, yes. Um, this is the advantage of, of starting with a question that's not political. And, you know, this is why I think my book is the first book about the brokenness of American public life that can be read by both sides, because it's nobody's fault that God is dead. Hey, it, it, it isn't something that the Republicans or the Democrats did. And so when you're asking a question like that, and I've, I've had this experience when you begin talking about the universe, however you view it, suddenly politics falls away. And that's a very good thing in this riven society. And to what extent does science and technology and, and its predominance today play a role in this? Yes, well, that's, uh, I think every, a lot of observers have said that the simplistic idea of God, the wonder worker, the supernatural being, 
that failed in large part because of the power of science. It's obvious now, we saw this with the virus. You don't pray to God to, to, to avoid the virus. You develop a vaccine. And that's a secular response. And so science absolutely is behind the death of God in large part. But on the other hand, there's more to, to science than um, meets the eye. And there are plenty of scientists who talk about a meaningful and beautiful and rational universe that where we can start. You know, scientists themselves are divided on the question of mechanistic materialism. They do not speak with one voice. And it's the fault of some of my fellow secularists to suggest that there's only one view and it's mechanistic materialism. No, there are plenty of secularists who are very close to religion. I'm, I'm one of them myself. Um, almost, you, you, you can hardly even tell the difference between secularism of a certain kind and certain forms of religion. Did the infusion of Christianity into politics through the Christian right, did that have an, a, a really adverse effect on all of this? It had a terrible effect. But I have to say, I think it only happened because faith was already gone. Um, I, mean, I say... Um, in, when I talk about these things, that there are really three groups of secularists in, in America. There are the hard atheists, you know, and then, then there are the sort of on-being secularists looking for meaning, people like me. But then by far the largest group goes to church. There are plenty of atheists in church. And I think a lot of the mix of politics and religion occurred only because faith was already gone. And it's a terrible thing to see. I love the Christian tradition. You know, I, I was educated at Mount Hermon um, School, which was a, a Christian school, and um, I hate to see what's happened to uh, Christianity today. I share all of uh, Jim Wallace's uh, sadness about that. How do you see the nexus today in, in, in this secular renaissance that you talk about between this and politics today? Well, I, I think actually the, the thing to do is not start with politics, but start with questions that are more meaningful, more fundamental, um, and talk about uh, things that, that mean something to people outside of politics. I think it's, it's nice to leave politics alone and occupy ourselves with more fundamental questions than that, uh, than political ones. So I think the starting point of the book is, Ask a question that's not political, a fundamental question, orient yourself in that direction, and um, suddenly a lot of the political problems will well, – they'll at least get smaller, Jeff. They won't you know, occupy the whole world, and you will stop judging people by what party they vote for because you'll have more things to talk about than politics. And hasn't that really been one of the problems in this fragmentation, that, that politics – in a, in a strange kind of way, is is the thing that both divides us and fragments us the most, and yet it's the one thing we have in common to talk about. <laughs> Isn't that strange? But you know, you know that could never have happened if we still had a kind of faith tradition, because politics was always seen as as a minor matter by our religions. There were much more important things, even even at the social level, not just at the individual level, but at the social level, the community of believers was more important than any political party. And um, and the religions always had the view that politics was flawed. There were no good people in politics. And the idea that one political side is good, that would never have occurred 
to anybody, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. But there was always that old adage that the two things you never want to talk about at family dinner were politics and religion. <laughs> That's true. The people felt so strongly about them. Um, that is true. And it, it's still true to some extent. But uh, now, you know, most people, a lot of people don't even have any contact with religion. It's, a, it's amazing. Uh, considering how many Americans say that they believe in God, you know, still 70 percent, but apparently it's not an effective belief. You know, it's just something that we say kind of hopefully, but it, as, as you said before, it has no institutional expression. It doesn't bake any bread. And what happens to, to, the, to the hollow core of religion today? Well, you know, uh, I'm, th this is, it may sound like a book hostile to religion. It's not at all hostile to religion. Secularists trying to build a secular society should look at the religions as great libraries of wisdom, you know, that we can borrow from. And one thing you have to do right away, and this is both tactical and it's in terms of meaningfulness, you have to stop get, having secularists attack religion. Um, it's it, it's it's not only bad politically. It it just makes the whole job of creating a secular civilization much more difficult because religious people are not going away. There are you know sincere believers, millions of sincere believers. They have to be part of this. They have a, a role to play in the debate about the universe, and we have to listen to them. So. I think that religion gets smaller and smaller, but sort of, I hope, better and better. As secularism grows, is there at some point, because there is always this, this reaction to things, does that become a, a, a springboard for a rebirth of some aspects of faith and religion? Yes, I, I, I suggest that in the last chapter, that you know, you, you, could, you could have a secular civilization that is spiritually fruitful and, and, and has depth, not like what we think of today as atheism. And in that milieu, uh, believers and non-believers, or so-called believers and non-believers, would come together because they would both be investigating the nature of reality, and they would no longer be a chip on everybody's shoulder. You're religious and I'm not. That's what a question like, is the universe on our side, right. was meant by Lonergan to avoid. It was meant to avoid the religion, non-religion distinction. It was a question every human being could ask. How does this get started? What, what, what is the, the, the key steps as you outline them in terms of, of moving this question forward? Well, the, um, Lonergan was uh, very direct about this. He said, individuals ask a question, uh, not groups not political parties, and they don't have a program. So you and I start. We start right here. Um, but he also said that um, there's a group of people in society who practice uh, logical thinking. They, they practice being uh, investigators. They practice questioning. And he called that group Cosmopolis. It, it's, not a, it's not an organized group. It, it occurs in exactly the kind of podcast that you engage in, um, it, it occurs whenever people ask questions without some kind of preordained program. And that's what he envisioned. He envisioned you, you begin asking individually, and then you talk with others and have unrestricted investigation. And you become a society that takes um, matters that are serious and seriously. We don't have any of this today.
You know, we're, we are absolutely uh, distracted by entertainment and our screens. Uh, questioning is something that you do instead. The, the other thing that, that impacts on that today is the desire and the expectation for instant gratification. These things we've been talking about are not things that happened overnight. They're not things that are going to resolve overnight. And, and to be able to stick with that narrative for a long time seems so difficult today. Right. Well, if you, if you don't believe that there is um, meaning, why would you stick with anything? Uh, when Dr. King said to victims of, of oppression, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, he was urging people to have patience, not to wait. I mean, he hated that, as you know, the letter from Birmingham jail, not to wait, to, to be actively engaged, but to be patient for results, um, because they take a long time, but they are coming. Even the Marxists of the 20th century had that kind of patience because they believed in that kind of universe. Uh, that's what we have to develop. That seems like the most difficult part of all today. And, yeah, and it may be because it is an instantaneous culture. But, you know, as you say, there are reactions. People are finding um, the um, 24-7 news cycle uh, uh, boring and wearying. And so, you know, I think maybe, maybe people are open and ready for something different something very different. And of course, there are universities, too, where this is supposed to be going on. Bruce Ledowitz, his book is The Universe is on Our Side, Restoring Faith in American Public Life. Bruce, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.